morning. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks here, the lead pastor. We'll be going... Continuing in our, our series on 1 Peter, and I want to start out by, uh, by asking this question. What do people hope for when they enter into the covenant of marriage? Now, many of you are married. Those who are not possibly hope to be, possibly, or at least you know someone who is. So... Regardless of whether or not um, you're, you, you're in marriage now or you've previously been married, you're widowed, you're divorced, or you're, no, I, I was raised by parents and their marriage was horrible, I'm never getting married. Regardless, this passage is relevant because it teaches us something, something about what marriage is. But I will tell you this, it does not tell you, it does not tell you that you ought to place your hope in your future or current marriage. This whole series, this whole series is titled, Where is Your Hope? The idea here that Peter is trying to get across to the first century readers of this, as they read it in the first century, and to those who are reading it today, is that there is only one place that we can find our hope, which is actually going to deliver. But coming back to the question, what do people hope for when they enter into marriage? Think about that. I've been married for 33 years. Some of you have been married longer. Some of you have not been married that long. And some of you are going to get married. Why did you get into marriage? What, what were you hoping for? Typically, the average response of a fiancé as they're, as they're talking about marriage is they hope that entering into this covenant with this person, they will feel the same way, the same euphoric feelings. They'll, they'll have these feelings for their spouse, and they'll feel this euphoric happiness. And then they're terribly disappointed, not that far into marriage. How many of you have experienced that disappointment? Yes? I, sermon's totally lost now. I... I was banking on a response that you guys were going to be normal, but let's just, let's move on and pretend that you're, that you are normal. Um, it's the point well taken for those of you didn't hear, we're all sitting next. 
to our spouses and you're thinking, I want to raise my hand, but they're going to see that, take that, that mean that I'm disappointed in them. And, but Stacy and I, two years into our marriage, well, Stacy figured out that I was not the man she thought I was and I terribly disappointed her. And that's probably been true for many of you that you've entered into marriage and, and it, 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 it wasn't all that you thought it was going to be. And for some of you, for some of you, not only wasn't it what you thought it was going to be, it has been a source of discord, strife, and, and real pain, real pain. And, and some of you, you're not married, but you come from homes that are broken because you've seen, you've seen the pain that your parents caused one another. So where is the hope when, when you're in marriage and your marriage seems hopeless? Where's the hope when, when, when it's just not what you thought it was going to be? Two goals last week of empowerment. And, and by the way, this, this sermon really needs to be understood in light of what we covered last week. How many of you were here last week? Good, this will set the foundation. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, you won't be lost, you won't be lost, but I do want to encourage you to go to our website, graceb3.org, and and go to our sermons page, and, and I want you to watch that last sermon. It's absolutely, literally foundational for what you're going to hear, what you're going to hear. The, it gives you the context, otherwise this will be difficult. It It'll be difficult either way, but... But last week gives it the context. So uh, this is a, a matrix that I put together. It's essentially what we covered last week. Two different views of empowerment. That's what we talked about last week. What it means to be empowered, to have real power. There's the world's view of power. And the world's view of power, the goal is I'm going to use the resources and power that I have to be happy. And the process, the process by, the, by which the world seeks to be happy is to use their influence, their power to change things. So in the context of marriage, if you want to be happy, you use your power, you use your influence to change your spouse because they're the problem, obviously. So you simply change them and then you'll be happy. The results... Nothing changes. How many of you have spouses have figured out that you do not have the power to change your spouse? Anybody figured this out yet? Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, you will soon find out you cannot change them. And by the way, the same applies to society and so forth. We think if I can just get power, then I can change things and then I'll be happy. And the results nothing changes. Now, last week we learned that the gospel, the gospel truly empowers people, but the goal is totally different. The goal is no longer to be happy, but to be holy. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, be holy as I am holy. Not I, Peter, but he's quoting the Old Testament. God says, be holy because I'm holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart and to recognize the purpose for which you were created. And that purpose is to glorify your creator. Having a relationship with him and walking in light of your relationship with him, you do all things for his glory 
And that brings him honor. That's what it means to walk in holiness. And by the way, here's a, here's a little secret that many people don't know. Don't tell anybody. You can't be happy unless you're holy. They're not, exclu- they're not mutually exclusive. They're, they're connected. Holiness leads to happiness. But the process is different. The process is different. The process of being holy is not to change the world. It's to be changed by the transforming of the Holy Spirit working out Christ in you, in me. It changes us. It changes us. I am fundamentally a different human being than I was in 1988 when I became a Christian. Furthermore, I'm fundamentally a different person than I was three years ago. Christ is being formed in me, and I am being changed. I am not the same man that my wife married in 1989. And she's thinking, thank you, Jesus. But she didn't change me. She did not change me. She does not have that kind of power. She influenced me. Without my wife, I would not have come to Christ, but I came to Christ before we were married. And I was still a terrible husband for most of my marriage. Well, maybe not terrible. It's in a relative scale, right? But what's the result? Everything changes. Everything changes. That, that was last week's, last week's emphasis. Last week's emphasis. Now we are going to apply that specifically in the context of a gospel-empowered spouse. A gospel-empowered spouse. We're going to look at the context. We have to understand the first century context here. Otherwise, it will be confusing to you. Secondly, we're going to see, well, what does the text say? What does it say, and why is Peter saying it? And the third thing we're going to do is application. Well, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Um, That's where we're headed this morning. And like last week, this is a difficult subject. And uh, without the Holy Spirit, my words are just words. So let's go to the Lord and ask Him to guide us this morning. Father, we come to You in humble dependence. We are completely dependent upon You and Your power. Uh, Father, Your Word is a double-edged sword. It's inspired, and we thank You for that. We pray that You would use Your Word to bring about a change in us. There are many people here who are not happy with their current marriage. And there are some people here who are hoping that, boy, when they get married, everything's going to be awesome. Lord, would you bring us to a place of reality where we understand um, your role and where true hope is? And Lord, would you, would you help those who feel trapped and feel um, uh, powerless? Lord, would you give them hope that there's real power in the gospel, regardless of their circumstances? Father, would you use your word to set captives free, to encourage, to strengthen, and to convict where conviction is needed. Father, would you, would you just exalt Christ? May I decrease and may he increase this morning for his glory. Lord, um, make yourself known in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Let's get into the text. First Peter chapter 1, likewise, stop. Likewise is very important. The likewise refers to, if you look at the text here, it refers to everything that, G, that, that Peter has said beforehand, starting in verse 3. 
He says earlier, be subject to the governing authorities. He says to servants, be subject to your masters. And he's specifically talking about very, very difficult situations. And in, in context of servants and masters, he says, even if some of them beat you unjustly, be like Christ. So what's the assumption here? The assumption is the marriage that Peter's talking about isn't a good one. Likewise. Likewise. It, it starts out with this, just a, just a tinge of hopelessness. This isn't a good scenario. So the likewise, he says, wives, stop. This is the portrait of what it means to be culturally and environmentally completely without any form of the world's power. There is no greater illustration than a human being without power than a first century woman. They had no rights, no rights economically, if their husband were to give them a certificate of divorce and leave, guess who has the rights to the children? The husband. The husband. They were not considered citizens. They did not have the right to own property. Now, they, they could own property, uh, but, but it, it, it always was given to the, the male heir. They were completely powerless in, a, in an economic situation, in a civil situation, and in a familial situation. It was better to be a slave than a wife in the first century. So this, this is as low as you can go on, on, the, uh, on, on, the, on the scale of power. Does it make sense? In the first century. Now, things are different, praise God, but this is the audience that Peter is speaking to initially. It's important to understand that context. So, likewise, wives, be subject. Again, he's already said earlier, servants, be subject to your masters. Be subject, all of you, be subject to the governing authority. So now, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, not to men in general. This is not a male-female thing. This is a order within the marriage. Wives, be subject to your husbands, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of the wives. Okay, stop. We won't go any further than right there. Let's just pause there for a minute. So what does that tell you about the kind of marriage that Peter is speaking about right now? What, how do you characterize the husband? Disobedient. This is, not an, this is not Ephesians 5. This is not Paul telling you what a good Christian marriage looks like. This is Peter addressing a woman who's in a not Christian marriage or one where the husband professes to be a Christian, but he is not living as a Christian. This is a hard marriage. Does it make sense? That's who Peter is talking to, and that's the context. Be subject to your own husbands. Now, so that, so that they might be one, one, one. What is, what's the victory here? How do you define victory when you're talking about the gospel? 
that they come to know the Lord Jesus and there is an inward transformation. Victory is not defined by, finally, I got power and I can make him or her do what I want. That's not, that's not victory in the context of the gospel. Victory in the context of the gospel is when a sinner comes to repentance and comes to know Jesus and becomes a follower of Christ. And then that inward transformation process begins. Now, let me just say that this is not a formula. You know what a formula is? A plus B equals C. If you have A and you have B, you get C all the time. That's not what this is. Peter's not saying, ladies, if you do this, I guarantee you that your obnoxious husband will repent and come to know Jesus and everything will be better. No, he might just continue to be obnoxious. But even if he continues to be obnoxious, This is how you ought to live. You ought to seek to become holy in Christ so that your obnoxious, unbelieving husband sees Christ in you. Two things will happen. One, he will repent. Or B, he won't repent and his judgment will be that much more severe because he's had a Christ-like example. It's not a formula. It's important to see that, not a formula. So that they might be one, so that they might be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, verse 3, do not... Let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you ladies right now are just, you're you're just, you're struggling. I, I know that you are. This just smacks of It just sounds patriarchal. It sounds oppressive. It sounds like men are subjugating women here. Context. Who's the least powerful person in the first century? Wives. They have no power. Or do they? The power of a first century woman without power is intersexuality. How does a woman without power get a man to do what she wants him to do? This is not, you don't, this isn't rocket science. What sells? Sex sells. It still works. It's a marketing ploy. This, this is, Peter's not saying you can't braid your hair and you shouldn't wear jewelry. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is how the world chooses to influence. That's not how you should influence. Don't let that be the means by which you seek to influence your husband. Remember, context, there's no one with less power than a first century wife. The only thing that she has in terms of power is her sexuality. And Peter's saying, don't rely on. Instead, 
Instead, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. How many of you find that to be sexist? Anybody find that to be sexist? That's not a quality of femininity. That's a quality of godliness. Did you hear what I just said? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, write down the reference. How does Jesus Christ, the Lord and creator of the universe, describe his person? I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's how the king of the universe describes his personhood. Gentle and lowly in heart. That is not a description of femininity. That is a description of righteousness and godliness. And I will confess that I didn't understand that until about two years ago. Being being loud and being intimidating and being powerful is is not masculine. It's just a picture of the world. I bought into the, well, that's just masculinity. Jesus is the most masculine human being that's ever lived, and he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That goes for men, too. That goes for men, too. Which in God's sight is very precious. Now he gives an example. Again, who's the the audience here? First century Christians. Context is important. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Some, I lost... 90% of the women, just right there in verse 6. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he goes back to the Old Testament saint, Sarah, who is married to Abraham, as a, for example, this is how it looks. This is how it looks. Peter's not saying that you, men, if you say this to your wives, you should be slapped. Do not, this is not about men saying, you know, you need to refer to me as Lord. Let's just start with that. No, that's horrible. That, that's a, that's a, an, a context in which, which Peter's addressing. It, 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 but the, the person, Sarah, is, is focusing on that. Focusing on that. If you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. We're going to go through uh, the book of Genesis it's starting in, in January. We're going to take a look at the patriarchs. We're going to take a look at Sarah and Abraham, Adam and Eve. We're going to to see all of these people. So we're going to look at Sarah specifically and her husband. But what does this look like? So in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, Abram, living in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, God comes to him and says, Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Many peoples will come from you. You will become the father of many nations. 
but he doesn't tell him where he's going. He doesn't say, here's the, the destination on Google Maps. Just follow directions. He says, I, go to the land. I will show you. So I want you to just imagine, ladies, you're Sarah. You're Sarah. And your husband says, I got a message from God. Well, which God, pray tell? Because we're moon worshipers in, in Ur of the, Chalde- the Chaldeans. That's, that's what they worship. Well, no, 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 not, not the moon God, the God, the God of gods. I'm not familiar with this God. Well, I wasn't either, but he, he showed up. So what does this God say we're, you're supposed to do? We're supposed to leave here. What do you mean leave here? Who? You and me. Where are we supposed to go? I don't know. Just, just west. How far west? Not sure. I'm just supposed to stop when I get there. He'll let me know. And again, who is he? The God of, of, of the universe. The God that we don't know. Well, I met him. But you don't know him. I know him. So we're supposed to go. And what does this God promise? That we're going to be, we're going to have, through our descendants, we're going to have many children, we're going to have a child and, and the, whole na- the whole world's going to be blessed through our descendants. He's going to make us a great nation. Abraham, I'm an old woman. I went through menopause 20 years ago and we couldn't have kids when I was fertile and you're an old man. How does this work? Don't know. That's what he said. Do, do you understand how utterly absurd it is for Sarah to yield to this guy? Ladies, how many of you are thinking, no. Oh, who's going to go with us? Whoever wants. Lots on board. That's it. That's it. Where are we going? Who lives to the place we're going? Well, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and the Hittites. Those people? You mean where Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, over there. This is frightening. This is frightening. And this is the example. Now, she trusts him. By the way, Sarah, Sarah um, and Abraham are not a model for an awesome marriage per se. As we will see, there's a lot of dysfunction. They are a hot mess most of the time in Genesis, and we will see this. But she is being used here as an example of what it means. She submitted herself to the Lord by trusting that the Lord was leading her husband, and so she submitted there, and it was a frightening situation. Now, modern context, the world is still a frightening place. There's a good many things to be frightened of in this world. There's disease, there's sickness. And yes, as we talked about last week, there is abuse. Now, for those of you that are in abusive context, you're wondering, why doesn't Peter tell the woman to flee? Again, first century context, flee to where? Flee to where? There's no upward mobility for a woman in the first century. If your husband is beating you and you live in the first century, there's no shelter house. So why doesn't she just leave? And do what? And do what? If she leaves, the only way that a first century woman can actually live is if her father takes her back in. And in a shame culture, that's highly unlikely. So what is a woman's option if her father won't take her back in and, her hus- and she's left her husband? How does she feed herself? Prostitution. 
So no, Peter doesn't give that as an option because that's worse. That's worse than staying put. We don't live in the first century. Thankfully, women are not on the lowest echelon of of society. Thankfully, there are rights and injustice should be addressed. Now, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I just, I I want you to understand what Peter is not saying. We are, we have the difficult task of taking a first century passage and applying it to the 21st century. Our cultures are completely different. Our cultures are completely different, but there are overlapping principles that that are transcendent regardless of, of where culture's at. So that's the example. That's the example. Again, this is all about what it means to be empowered through the gospel, even when you don't have power, according to the world. Again, that's last week's sermon, but this is an application. Now, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I just want to stop right here and answer a question that some of you have. How come the men only get one verse? How come the women get six and the men get one? Okay, remember who's Peter addressing in chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through this verse. He's addressing those who do not have power. Husbands in the first century, this is the only place where they have authority, if you're a Christian. They don't have authority in government. They're not Roman citizens. They don't have any power economically. But in their context... They don't need to be addressed as those without power because they do have authority in the first century. So the text is smaller. It assumes they're not being oppressed by their wives. Why? Because in the first century, if they were oppressed by their wives, they would just kick them out. But that's not what he tells them to do. Likewise, what does likewise refer to? In a similar manner, in other words, there's something similar about what the husband is experiencing, that the wife is experiencing, that the servants were experiencing, that citizens of the government were experiencing. And what is that? The one they're yoked to is not all that they should be. So now the tables are turned. Now the woman in this case doesn't say that she's disobedient, but likewise strongly suggests that she's not a peach. She's hard to live with. She's difficult. Let's notice, first of all, what the text does not say. Husbands, just tell her to submit. You will never find a verse in the Bible that tells a man to tell a woman to submit. Now, here's the sad reality. There are many Christian men maybe some of you in this room, who have played the submit card. You didn't get that from the text. Every time Jesus addressed someone in authority and says, do you want to know how to lead? Do you want to know how to, do you want to influence power? Then then serve, then take a towel and wash their feet. That's how you do it. Nowhere in scripture does it tell a man, a husband, to tell a wife to submit. That's between her and the Lord. It is between her and the Lord. What does it say? Live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? It's literally translated, 
live with them according to knowledge. Not live with them, that's not the pronoun. It says live with the woman. It's translated wives, but it literally says in the Greek, live with the woman according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of what? The word knowledge here, it, it means uh, to know. It's, it's used in terms of sexual intimacy. Abraham knew Sarah and she conceived. It's used that way. But it's also in terms to, in, used in terms of the deepest sense of intimacy. In other words, know your wife, know her, but also know yourself and know God. Knowledge is not just know your wife. It's know yourself, know God, know your wife. Or the woman. Showing honor as the woman, as the weaker vessel. Again, by the way, this is just a, this is a landmine, this text. Every step I step, don't don't step there, you blow yourself up. I know right now that there are women that are thinking, see, this is why I struggle so much with the scriptures. Why? Because they're honest? What does he mean by weaker vessel? Now, the word vessel, it means container. This word is used to both men and women in 1 Corinthians and also Acts. But he says the weaker vessel. Weaker in what sense? Emotionally? Some people think that women are are weaker emotionally. Why? Because they cry. I cry all the time. Some of you are saying, well, that's why you're emotionally weak. No. Verses 1 through 6... We've just seen there is no more stronger human being emotionally than the woman who fulfills verses 1 through 6. Sarah is not an emotionally weak woman. Intellectually weak? Not even close. Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla being mentioned first, actually mentored and taught Apollos, who was a first century preacher, It's not about intellectual inferiority. Women are not inferior or less or weaker than men. Some of your ladies are like, preach it. Absolutely. It's true. You're not. You're not. Is it is it spiritually or morally? No. It's what is the sin? It's called the sin of Adam. Not the sin of Eve. Our first century or our 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 forefather Adam sinned, as did Eve. But they're, they're, we're not morally weaker. We're not moral. Then what context? Well, what are we left with? Physically. Now, I know that there are some women that are physically stronger than men. But in, in the month of October, it was Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Statistics bear out that women by far and away, are more vulnerable to be physically abused by men than men by women. Why? Because men are physically, in general, stronger. I've never felt unsafe walking alone at night. My wife has. Why? Because she's only 120 pounds. I'm 225 pounds. I don't fear most people. My wife cannot defend herself against men in general. I'm arrogant enough to think that I can defend myself against any man on the planet. (laughs) Well, maybe not anymore since my back went out last year, but I used to think that. This is just a physical reality. 
This is a physical reality. Weaker vessel is not talking about spiritually. It's not talking about intellectually. It's not talking about emotionally. It's not talking about morally. It just means that women are vulnerable in a dangerous world. Can we just stop pretending that that's not a reality? If you know a counselor, if you know a counselor that counsels women, they will tell you horror stories of abuse by which women who are powerless to defend themselves against the intellectual abuse, against the spiritual abuse, and against the physical abuse of their stronger husbands. Weaker morally and spiritually, but stronger physically. That's been the reality since the fall. And Peter is just acknowledging what everyone knows. Now, I recognize that in our gender-confused culture that people don't like that, but it still bears out. That's, that's the way the world is. That's the way a broken, fallen world is. Since they are heirs with you. The phrase is joint heirs or co-heirs. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 real quick. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 28, 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. Here's the thing. Men and women, husband and wives, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, in the eyes of our Father in heaven, are co-heirs. They are equal in the eyes of God and should be equal in the eyes of man. Yes, one is physically stronger than the other. Yes, one may have more power in the structures of the world, but they are co-heirs in Christ co-heirs in Christ. Now, since they are heirs in Christ with you of grace, so that, there's the so that. Why should men live with their wives in an understanding way according to knowledge? Why should they? So that your prayers may not hinder. Men, here's the hard truth. If you are harsh with your wife and you are not growing in Christ-likeness and if you are playing the submit card and you are subjugating her, and you are ruling and lording it over with her, and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you are walking solo. You do not have the power of the Lord, and your prayers, they bounce right off the ceiling. You need to understand that. And you will never experience true Christ-like power until you become gentle and lowly like your Savior. Again, that gentle and lowly and that quiet spirit, it's not good for women alone. It's good for men and women. So many of you know this, some of you don't. But Stacy and I entered counseling about two and a half, three years ago because I'm not a gentle person by nature. I'm a loose cannon 
I'm not emotionally mature. Or at least I wasn't. I'm growing, but I was easily angered. And my prayers, I believe, have been hindered for decades because I walked around with this pseudo-macho, masculine spirituality, which was neither spiritual or powerful, but just a representation of what the world values as power. And I'm embarrassed by that. I'm in, my wife and I watched a movie last night called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. How many of you have seen it? It's about Mr. Rogers, the quintessential wuss. <laughs> That's what I would have said about 10 years ago. You know what I say now? The quintessential picture of a representation of the person of Christ. The most gentle human being who God gave the ability to connect with children but he didn't need to have his veins popping out of his forehead. And I went to counseling and I came face to face with the fact that I was not living with my wife according to knowledge. I was totally blind. I was totally blind to the fact that I had bought into the culture's understanding of what it means to be a powerful man which is, by the way, the ability to dominate another human being. Now, that's fine in wrestling. It's fine in football. But that mentality makes for a terrible marriage. I remember wrestling and and listening to Coach Gable talk about you need to oppose or impose your will on another human being. And again, in the sport of the context of wrestling, well, that's exactly what you do. But once you become one flesh with another human being, you can impose your will on them. And, and it's not that I was ever physical with my wife. I was never physical. I never touched my wife. But simply by the force of my personality and the force of my intellectual argument, my wife calls it, you would channel your inner lawyer and I would, I would back her into a corner intellectually to demonstrate that whatever I was pushing for was what was right. And I was not living with her according to knowledge. I was living with her according to what I wanted from her. It was making her life miserable. And ironically, mine was miserable until I began to live with her in an understanding way. Treating her with honor as the weaker vessel. You see, I could be in a context where Gable would be this close to my face when I was wrestling and point his finger in my face and yell at me. It's just what you do. And I, I would stand there. And I would respond. And I don't mind when people raise their voices. But then if I 
take that same forcefulness and have a discussion with my wife and all that intensity, intensity boils over, just steamroller. And my prayers went no higher than this ceiling. Last night after we watched Mr. Rogers, she didn't say that I was Mr. Rogers, but we both were talking about how we were both, we were, we were mourning in a sense. We were grieving over the lost years of opportunity. She was grieving from what she experienced from me. And I was grieving over the fact that I wasn't a better man. But we were both rejoicing in the sense that we're all speaking about this in past tense. It's not who I am anymore. Do you know what my prayer request from people last week was? When I preached on, on, on the topic that we're talking about, people were saying, how can I pray for you? I said, pray that God would give me the words and that Christ would be honored. And pray that when I start to get to the place where I'm addressing men who abuse their wives, pray that I would be gentle. Because if you've been here for longer than three years, you know what the old Brooks would have done when he starts addressing bullies. He would have become one. Because I didn't understand real power. Real power is not about imposing your will on another human being. Real power is submitting to the will of your Father in heaven and seeking to have his will done on heaven or on earth as it is in heaven, including your marriage. For many of you, that's present tense. For some of you, it's future tense. You don't have to go through 30 years of marriage like I did with a false understanding of masculinity. Spare your wife and spare yourself that nonsense. And understand that Jesus Christ is your model for masculinity. He's your model for femininity. He's your model for humanity. He says, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. That's real power. Now that said, Being empowered to love does not mean being silent about injustice wherever it occurs. We ended here last week. I'm going to end here this week. There are some that are in context right now where it is not safe. You should be safe. You should be safe. We have an abuse paper. I want you to go to that, graceb3.org backslash abuse that describes what an abusive situation is. Familiarize yourself with that. Even if you're not in an abusive situation, you want to be able to recognize that because people in the body of Christ will be. Your friends, your family members. It's good to understand this. Some of you do need counseling. My wife called me on the carpet three years ago, said, I can't live like this anymore. And so I submitted myself to biblical counseling. We submitted ourselves because I recognized that I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I know the Bible. I just couldn't see how to apply it. Real empowerment comes from knowing Christ. 
and being empowered by Christ. As we close this morning, if you need counseling, please go to our website. Fill out the, fill out the form. Let us know how we can help you. If you need prayer, love to pray with you. Come forward. There'll be people here to pray with you. Um, and it doesn't have to be about the needs or it doesn't have to relate to the sermon, whatever God has placed upon your heart. But this empowerment, first of all, begins with you receiving Christ as Savior. So start there. Submit your lives to him. Submit your lives to him and let him change you from the inside out. Father, thank you for, for sending your son. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to give your life for us. Thank you that Jesus, although being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself of his glory and took the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. Lord, would you help husbands to become obedient? Would you help wives to be obedient to you, to submit ourselves to you? Lord, to find our understanding of what real power is in letting you live your life through us? Father, we thank you for what you've done, that you've taken our sins to the cross. Thank you that you've done this for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace, and we'll see you next week.